Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 175th video cast, 165th podcast for the week ending February 23rd, 2023. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Exciting week, a lot to share, but I'd like to kick it off first and foremost. I got to meet one of our long-term podcast, video cast listeners, Alex Bauer, flew down from Toronto this week. Uh, to uh, see me at the money show and do some business in New York while he was there. And the guys on his trading desk, he's at uh, Barclays up in Toronto, uh, they all chipped in because they made so much money on Cooper Standard and they got me this incredible Canadian National Hockey jersey. And you got to check this thing out. Uh, let's see. All right, there we go. Canadian National Hockey jersey. And it's not just that. It's custom, and it's got my name on the back, and it says number 98. And I said to Alex, I said, listen, this is the greatest gift ever. I'm so excited. Uh, and it's kind of a joke because for those of you who have been listening for a while, I do take jabs at Canada and the loony from time to time. Uh, so, uh, so they had to just enjoy watching me wear the Canadian national jersey for the 175th podcast so i'm totally excited about that um so i said why 98.99 he said well listen 99 is the hallowed ground reserved for the great one you are on the ascent my friend and headed to great places but you're not there yet you're good not great uh and i agree that uh that uh, 99 wayne gretzky was the greatest there ever was and I'm just uh, happy to be at 98 and uh, and always striving and staying hungry to get better and better and better over time. But want to thank Alex, uh, Alex Bauer. I think Jeff is also on the desk and a few others who chipped in for this. So now you guys get to have a blast watching me wear the Canadian national jersey. Everyone cares about Canada. I take back all of my uh, jibes and jokes over the years. And it was really great to catch up and spend some time with you. We've got a ton to cover today. Despite the short week, we've got a long call. I'm going to uh, uh, share some special highlights from that money show. Not everything, because the people that traveled from far and wide, uh, you want to definitely uh, get the advantage of that. But we are going to get into a good amount of it. But first and foremost, there's a lot going on in the market. One day we're up, one day we're down. Um, we're going to actually, uh, first off, I want to start with the media. Uh, I'd like to thank Catherine Myers over at Fox Business, um, uh, as well as Shell Cassoni, Liz Clayman, uh, for having me on the Clayman Countdown on Friday afternoon. We're going to actually watch part of the clip here just to give you an overview on the general U.S. market. So here we go. Now, as the two-year Treasury climbs to its highest level in three months, many investors are ducking into bonds. They're looking for a safe haven, but could playing it safe have some hidden dangers. Let's get right to the floor show to find out where investors should be putting their money. Joining me right now here in studio, Great Hill Capital Chairman Tom Hayes. Tom, you say that the pain is being in safe, secure bonds and that the storm that everyone's waiting for has already passed. What? That's right. When, when everyone's crowded to one side of the boat, Cheryl, it usually doesn't work out well. Managers are the most overweight bonds relative to stocks than they've been since the pandemic lows in 2020. 
and the great financial crisis lows in 2009, and we both know that was a time to buy equities, not bonds. The reason we know this is that since 1950, every cycle, the stock market bottoms six to nine months before earnings bottom. So even if you're pessimistic and you think earnings are going to come down a little bit, that October bottom may be in. We're up 18% since then. And what we find is that you could miss the next move higher. The pain of being in bonds is the negative real yield, which is negative 1.5% after inflation. And then the second bit of pain is what if we continue to climb that wall of worry? We discounted the slowness in 2023 in 2022 with the stock market crash. We're going to discount the strength of 2024 earnings recovery in 2023. And I think people are underestimating that right now. You know, I've heard this, this line of thinking in this argument before because you know, every CEO in Davos in particular was saying recession, recession, recession. Well, maybe you're talking yourself into one or because consensus says a recession is happening, maybe it does not. Does the technical word recession worry you at all or you're more interested in the fundamentals of the market right now? Well, we did have a technical recession in Q1 and Q2 of 2022. And I think any pain that people are worried about right now, with a 25% peak to trough correction in the S&P last year, a 35% peak to trough in the NASDAQ correction, that priced in a lot of pain for this year. So as we look out to 2024, S&P earnings estimates, Cheryl, are $250, which means we're only trading at 16 and a half times forward earnings right now, and there's a lot to do. There are a lot of things, high-quality businesses that got beat down last year that are still values at this level. There are some positives that we got this week, and we had a lot of econ data across this week. Initial jobless claims come in, you know, still around that 200,000. I think it's 190,000 is the four-day moving average, but core retail sales for January, that came in strong. The home builder sentiment survey, that actually rose seven points. Uh, and then you also have the small business optimism index that actually rose, which to me flies in the face of those that are saying that we're going into a downturn, run for the hills, sell your, mar sell your stocks, going to bonds and you seem to be agreeing with that line of thinking as well yeah i mean you saw the jobs report cheryl you saw the retail sales you saw the new autos in january up 5.9 percent people are moving on and the the interesting thing is the concern is oh my goodness if the economy is so strong the fed is going to keep at it well the issue is the economy is handling it pretty well so even if we do another 25 basis points or maybe even two 25 basis point hikes the the, the market is handling it the economy is handling it and it's going to look forward to those 2024 earnings moving forward. The bears will tell you that inflation and the inflation story, and we had CPI and PPI this week, that that is why the Fed is going to continue to not just raise rates, but really keep raising rates to the end of the year. In fact, the, a bear would tell you right now if they were sitting here, and I'm not one, but I'll, but I'll repeat what their sentiment is, that, that we're going to see rate hikes to the end of, end of the year and that overall uh, that that means that this market is not going to recover until 2024 because of the aggressiveness of the Fed. I've got one better for you. From 1995 to 1999, the Fed funds rate was over six and a half percent. And people said tech could not perform with a high Fed funds rate. Well, look what happened. We had the biggest bull market run in tech at a six and a half percent Fed funds rate from 95 to 99. So even if we go another 25, 50, we're going to be OK. And the interesting thing is those sectors that everyone told you not to be in last fall, tech, 
communication services, consumer discretionary. Those are the top three performers next this year, and we like them moving forward. There's a lot of you like tech, which is because there's been a lot of pressure on tech. They yeah. say that, the, that it's all about value and not to growth. And I actually want to bring in Fitzgerald Group Principal Keith Fitzgerald. Keith, thanks for joining the conversation this afternoon. And we're talking about the Fed and the economy. Now let's get into sectors because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bulls out there that say that we should be invested in tech. Tom is one of them. Is that a sector that you're looking at right now? Absolutely. I couldn't be more strongly in agreement with that. The laggards become the leaders when people least expect it, especially under conditions like we're facing at the present. And we're back. Uh, then I'd like to thank, as well as Jake Mack over at Fox Business, by the way. Uh, I'd also like to thank Taylor Clothier and Sidney Freed over at Yahoo Finance, as well as Shauna Smith and Dave Briggs for having me on. We're also going to uh, cut to a short clip here because I want to get you the overview on the U.S. markets before we move on. Here we go. But I do think in terms of the general market, uh, it's time for the bears to curb their enthusiasm. Why? Because markets don't top when managers are in record cash and overweight bonds relative to equities. You know, managers today are the most overweight bonds relative to equities than they were since the pandemic lows and since the great financial crisis lows in 2009, March of 2009. And that, those are just not the conditions uh, to get a top in the market. But where we are is an 18.5% rally off the October lows, and we're just consolidating in a normally seasonally weak part of the year. The second two weeks of February historically is a very weak part of the year. So expect a little bit of consolidation, use it to find some bargains and opportunities, but uh, I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater here. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, the lumber prices down 50 percent year yeah. over year. You're right. That was something that really took a bite out of Home Depot. Don't want to counteract the positive Fed news that you mentioned there, uh, the labor force participation rate. But both Home Depot and Walmart are increasing wages. Doesn't that counteract any good news that yeah. the Fed might see in the short term. So we've had the benefit of the commodity prices coming down. We've had this lagged overweight owner's equivalent rent, which anyone who looks at the granularity of inflation knows that in May, June, and July, those numbers are going to start to collapse. Why is that? Because new leases, new rents, commercial and residential, are coming down. It's the old leases working on a lag basis that have a significant weight in the inflation indices that are holding the thing up. So we're seeing this stubbornness uh, narrative persist. I think as we get to May, June, and July, uh, we're going to see it drop like a rock, and people aren't prepared for that. You know, we had a 25% peak to trough uh, correction in the S&P last year, a 35 peak to trough in the NASDAQ last year. That priced in a lot of bad news this year that we're seeing. We're seeing a slowdown in earnings. We're seeing earnings taken down. And that's what the market does. Since 1950, the market bottoms six to nine months before earnings bottom. And that's why we think the October lows are in. And that's why we've been bullish the last few months when we've been on the show. And what we also think is going to be a surprise is, so even if you think earnings are going lower, it's still time to be in the stock market. And now we're going to start to discount 2024. We've just finished 2022 earnings. We're not interested in that. 2024 S&P earnings are still $250, which means today we're trading just slightly below 16 times forward earnings. So Particular there's, there's sectors there. you're bullish on. Before we go. I think right now for the nervous Nellies, you want to be have a little bit of defensiveness, you know, wait for this to come in a little bit. 
you know, we like uh, Amgen, we want to have some uh, exposure to biotech, okay? Biotech, uh, more deals are going to start to get done. Pharma has tons of cash on their balance sheet. They have to buy the growth. One name we like is Amgen. It's trading at 12 and a half times forward earnings. They've compounded capital, return on invested capital, over 20% for the last half a decade. And the story that I love is the biosimilars. They've got a drug now uh, that's going to compete with Humira. Humira is a $90,000 a year drug for rheumatoid arthritis. They're producing a biosimilar for $40,500. And they have a, a slate of another half dozen of those drugs coming out throughout this year. So we like Amgen at this multiple. And we like Centene. It's a health insurer. They do 65% Medicaid, 30% uh, me Medicare. That business is growing by 20%, trading at 10 times forward earnings. So these are defensive safe stocks until the dust clears and we push higher. But with everyone in bonds, maximum pain is that we do push higher. And that's usually what happens when no one, no one expects it. We don't top when everyone's in bonds. We top when everyone's in equities. I hope everybody's taking notes. That's a lot you just threw at us. <laughs> yeah. The kitchen sink came at us, Tom Hayes. Good to see you. Great Hill Capital. Thanks for having Always me. Always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for being in the studio. All right, now. And we're back. So those are really the, the broad overviews. I'd like to thank uh, over at CGTN, Phil Yin and Longwei Zhang for having me on uh, that show. You can check that out on YouTube or at the CGTN site. like to thank Chibuke Ogu for having me uh, in his Reuters article earlier this week, as well as Davide Barbusia and Naomi Rovnik for having me in their Reuters article. And then this weekend, I got a chance to speak at The Money Show. And this was a conference that they do exclusively for accredited investors. Uh, this is an establishment in the business. It's been around for 40 years. A lot of great speakers have uh, spoken there over the years. So uh, my friend Phil Flynn, you see here, uh, who have done many segments on Fox Business with him, Ed Yardani, uh, Peter Schiff, a friend, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Ray Dalio spoken at that. Tom Lee spoke this week. So it was really a great experience and not just to uh, meet accredited investors and uh, uh, be able to give the presentation and talk, etc., cetera, uh, but also to catch up with friends and meet new friends. We had an incredible dinner. You're going to recognize a lot of folks from this picture. If you watch uh, Fox Business and uh, CNBC also, uh, Mike Lee. Mike Lee grew up in the same town I live in. As a matter of fact, he was telling me that he had been to uh, parties at my house that I currently live in when he was in high school. Uh, and so that was pretty small world, uh, to say the least. And then, uh, so that's Mike. No one, no one challenged him to a, an arm wrestle. He's a jujitsu uh, kind of champion type guy. Uh, and then Scott Martin, he does Fox Business and CNBC. Uh, Luke Lloyd, Luke Lloyd uh, from uh, Strategic Wealth Partners. And uh, uh, Kevin Mann from uh, Henyon and Walsh, he heads that up and he's a golfer. So we'll get out on the on the course this week. We had a great steak dinner over at uh, Wolfgang's in Tribeca. So that was a good time. And then Kenny Polcari, who you all know from Fox Business, and that was Luke Lloyd. That's at the, uh, the Marriott New York where we did the, the conference. Um, but I'm going to read a quick... Uh, AMA question. We'll get to the bulk of them at the end because I know some of you get a lot of value and we stay later to do all the questions. But this one was really cool from JT Investor. Tom, congratulations on another great call with Range Resources. If you remember, we covered it uh, several months ago. It's done nothing for six months and today it's up 20%. They're off to the races. Uh, and we also 
ironically, someone asked it in the Ask Me Anything questions last week, and uh, they must have been a newer listener, and were like, yes, we own this. Uh, and sure enough, they, they're finally turning the corner, and the stock's up big today. Uh, he says, I missed the initial run waiting for earnings given the JPM bearish research that kept me on the sidelines and my own skeptical views that the new CEO uh, would kitchen sink earnings this quarter, guide conservatively, and that wage inflation would reduce the net present value on the engine LTSAs, resulting in margin erosion and lower free cash flow to earnings. The increased flight hours on wide-body aircraft part of the equation seems like it's early innings. Do you think it's too late to start a position in the name, or is all the good news already priced into the stock? No, I, I would wait for it to breathe a little bit, but none of the good news is priced into the stock yet, in my view, uh, even though it's up big today. Uh, also, I've been holding uh, uh, Freeport McMoran based largely on the supply-demand outlook for global copper, EVs, electrification, infrastructure spending. It looks cheap on an EV multiple basis, but it's been dead money for some time. Would you recommend selling FCX now and reallocating to some of your favorites? biotech, Alibaba, Centene Amgen, range resources. Last, I hope you will share some of, oh, last, I hope you'll share some of the highlights from your presentation at the Money Show Conference, either on this week's video cast or next week, since I'm sure it was a good presentation. Thanks for all your excellent work and insights. Have a nice weekend. Um, Freeport, I think we'll cover at the end. Um, I've never been in love with that stock. Um, not for me. As far as Centene and Amgen, those are more uh, short-term trades I do when I go on TV. They want to know what, what are you looking at now. Sometimes I'll give some stuff from the trade service. If I'm giving a really long-term investment, I'll spend some time on the podcast and I will um, uh, pound the table because the long-term investments were in for a long time and that's where my clients make all the big money. So um, over time. So we'll get to that. But here's what we're going to do. I didn't so my presentation was profiting from periods of dislocation and I wanted to make sure that the people that bought tickets, well, some of you actually got free tickets that responded to the emails, but you know, that bought tickets, that flew down, that paid for a hotel, paid for airfare, uh, got the bulk benefit. So I'm, I'm going to share with you about half of the presentation that we did at the money show. And the key thing here is not talking about the past, like, oh, these trades worked and they were so great and pat myself on the back. It has nothing to do with that. It's about mental framework for how we think about investments going in and what, how we manage when what we're thinking going in, how we manage if they move against us in the short term, and then how we work to get them resolved over time and, and they can lead to, to multi-baggers and very nice returns over time. So the key here, if you've heard some of these things, you're probably going to see that I frame it in a different way in this presentation and you're going to get another cut of value in terms of investing framework and how you can think and understanding our thought process and probably pick up some things that you may find helpful in your thought process. So we're going to go through names, a few names in the past. We're also going to go through current names. And I got to say, even going through some of the detail on Alibaba, just it made me want to buy so much more going through the data and the comparison to Microsoft, et cetera, through the middle of, of the uh, uh, 2010s. So check that out, uh, as well as uh, some of the Q&A at the end. So we'll do this segment real quick, and then we'll be back in a second. Here we go. Range resources. Now we have an amazing natural gas specialist, so he's gonna eviscerate me here if I don't get all the facts right. Um, 
So we started buying in $12 range here. Now you say, well, you're an idiot because it went down to 160. And uh, to that, I would say you are 100% correct. I was an idiot. However, um, what we did, it was trading. So, so, but now consider what I was thinking. The stock was down from $91 down to $11. Kind of caught my interest but price doesn't mean anything you have to discern value right price is what you pay value is what you get so i said to say is the value greater or less than eleven dollars because at 90 percent, if they're not going bankrupt there might be some inherent value and obviously if they were trading at eleven dollars there was a fear that they were going bankrupt okay uh so what we did was we looked at the capital structure, we looked at what would be the liquidation value of the business. If they did go bankrupt, would there be anything left for equity holders after the bondholders? And what we found was that at that time, what you're required to report publicly is PV10, proven reserves out 10 years. Uh, we valued that at about $23 a share. That was the book value, it was trading at 11. So we knew we had a margin of safety. If we bought an 11 and it moved against us, we could still make money in this thing, even in the worst case scenario. What they don't record is what they call unproved reserves. And they had multiple decades of unproved reserves, which we valued at another $40. And we still do today, by the way. So our startup position, and we never enter a position or very rarely enter a position all at once, and we very rarely exit a position at all at once because we don't think we're the all-seeing omnipresent gods that can guess the exact bottom tick or the exact uptick. Um, so here's what happened within, <laughs> so in our minds, the stock's worth $63 over time. We buy it around $11, $12, it immediately goes to 18. Geniuses, absolute geniuses. Like, you know, this is just great. So then the pandemic comes, other uh, supply glut, lateral fighting gets better, technology gets better. It drops down to a buck 60 in the middle of the pandemic. So now if I know that the inherent value of this business is $63 a share, and I've determined that they have very low probability of going bankrupt, what are most people doing right here? They're selling the hell out of this. They're, they can't get out fast enough. It's a, a narrow door, half the size of that, with four times as many people all trying to hit it at the exact same time. We bought so much range resources, we brought our basis down to $4.11 during that pandemic low. Now, we still believe the business is worth $63, which is why, after it subsequently made 9x, and we could have laid off at 36, we did it. It's now back to $23. Why aren't we sellers? <coughs> 63. We think it's worth 63. But are we, are we so arrogant to think that the market is going to catch up with us or think that it's 63? No, so as this moves up, we'll probably lay some off in the 40s, we'll lay some off in the 50s, we'll lay some off in the 60s. Why do we think it would go above 63? because the market operates on euphoria, which is this. These were the exact same assets in 2014, more or less the exact same assets in 2020. This is euphoria, where people can't get it up. 
And when, when we get back to that point, and how can you discern euphoria? Um, well, it's kind of obvious in retrospect in the chart, but how you can discern it is you do your analysis of fair value and you make an estimation of what's fair. And if, if fair is $63 and it's trading at 91, I'm not a buyer, I'm a seller. So we'll get to the same level of euphoria, probably 40, 50, 60. We'll see how this cycle goes. You know, if you look back here, this could be a year of consolidation, okay? So then it just becomes a calculation of internal rate of return. How long are you willing to, uh, how long additionally, you know, you've gotten this already, how long additionally are you willing to hold for that consolidation until you realize your estimate of fair value and you're laying it off um, until you get to a period of euphoria? So yeah, we'll have a lot of it laid off, 50s and 60s, but we're gonna hold some and get, get, a, get the benefit just like we were at the effect of despondency, we want to get the benefit of euphoria. Does that make sense? Okay. So we knew what we owned, so we use the volatility to buy down and bring our basis set all the way down. Understanding the quality we own did not create fear when the share prices fell. Uh, and to date 6x, and, you know, down from 9x by the way, uh, and our ability to understand what we own allows for logical decisions that are not ruled by fear. This is critical. So if, if you do the proper analysis, don't get caught up with squiggly lines on a piece of paper and everyone thinks they have some magic indicator. Like, know what you own when you're buying a business. And if you know the inherent value, and the way that I think about that, it's just, what would a rational business person pay for this asset in the private markets? Forget about stock price. If you look at the balance sheet, the cash flow statement, the income statement, and you say, if JP Morgan gave me a hundred million dollar credit line, what business would I buy in at what price? Or a hundred billion dollar credit line if you're talking about a large cap stock, what would be an acceptable takeout where the board would actually take the meeting and I could get the job done? And then how far above or below? And that's why I love private mar uh, public markets over private markets. Private market are beneficial because you have an information asymmetry. If you have an information asymmetry in public markets, you're gonna be in a lot of trouble. <laughs> so you generally don't have an information asymmetry, but you have the emotions of euphoria and despondency, which serve up these crazy prices, which allow you to make multi-baggers. And they don't come around every minute, but when they come around, as Buffett says, when it rains gold, pull out the bucket, not the thimble. And that's what we do with these opportunities. Okay. The next one was the pandemic crisis. So on hedgefundtips.com on March 19th, the reason I'm telling you that you can get these articles free every single week, we published an article that said, you know, the world was in panic because no one could quantify when are we going to get a vaccine? When is this going to be over? What's going to happen? So the only thing I can do is look back to history. And I pulled up the Dow Jones because there wasn't S&P data back, back that far. And I put out in the article on hedge fund tips on March, on March 19, 2020, that look, even in the Spanish flu, which killed a ton of people, they had no medicine, they had no way to control it, they had no way to communicate. The max drawdown was 33.67%. We're down, you can see here, March 19, we're down, 32% at that point. So for me, it was like, 
no matter how bad this gets, it's likely that the worst is already priced in. Remember the emotions of despondency and euphoria. At this point, economists were coming out saying we're gonna have 20% unemployment, the world is gonna shut down, uh, everything's gonna go wrong, and people were betting, you had Rubini, by the way, uh, down when we were down 32%, you had Rubini out saying we're going down another 40%. And he was, you know, as always, always certain that, you know, never in doubt, uh, and, and, he was, and it was completely wrong. So that got picked up by MarketWatch, you can still Google it up, uh, market action a century ago suggests we could be over in stocks. Uh, the good news is that printed two days before the bottom. Bad news is we went down another 3%, so I was partially wrong. So people, you know, I got a few phone calls, you're an idiot. And then a month later, people were calling me and saying, wow. Uh, but it wasn't again a crystal ball. It was looking at information asymmetry and saying what's rational, separate the fear, because everyone had real fear during that time, uh, and you know, what is there to do next? As Dr. Bean, Yeah, but you know, that's his thing. Every 10 years they're right, and they make a ton of money, by the way. Yes. But you know, I, I always say, because I, I, um, I do a little media from time to time, I always say, the pessimists sound more sophisticated the optimists wind up with all the money. And if you actually track that out over time, it's true. Why is that? It's because that's how, that's the formula of capitalism. You know, population growth, inflation, things trend up over time. Uh, but, you know, it's not great for marketing. So uh, if you're always uh, generally optimistic or finding optimistic opportunity. Uh, so in the context of if the bottom was in, then what was there to do? We were looking for opportunities. But when things are that uncertain, you have to go as high up the food chain in terms of quality as you possibly can. Because you can't be betting on risky stocks because it could have gotten a lot worse before it got better. So what you wanna do is look, look for historic asymmetry of the highest quality names that have been compressed due to exogenous events and lay into them. So the one that was kind of a no-brainer at that point was Wells Fargo. And the reason we were interested in Wells Fargo was we just watched the yield curve. And this was in one of the articles on Hedge Fund Tips. So you can go back and see all these times. What was he saying when I felt this? What was he saying when I felt that? Um, and what we saw was that the yield curve started steepening aggressively. And the green line here is financials as evidenced by the financials ETF. Uh, and this is the yield curve steepening. So we saw this aggressive steepening. We knew it was time to play financials. And what was interesting about Wells Fargo, it was down, I don't know, from 70 down to the mid-20s. We started buying at 28. We were wrong. It went down to 22. We bought more. Our basis was 2501. And this is in the middle of complete chaos. Um, but it wasn't just like a gamble, like, let me find a high-quality company because the market's crashing. It was like, what's this business worth and what has it done historically through cycles? There were only two other times in history that Wells Fargo had traded to a 40% discount to book. One was during the great financial crisis, which was a lot worse than any pandemic because you had a credit thing. Uh, and two was during the SNL crisis in the early 90s. So we said, well, could it go to a 60% discount to book? Yeah, but then we probably have a lot more to worry about in life than Wells Fargo, our little position in Wells Fargo because it means that kind of the world is ending. Um, but the thesis was predicated, again, on an accounting change. Remember Phoenix companies, one accounting change by, by the advisory board, FAS 157, created that opportunity. Well, guess what? They did this at the exact wrong time in the pandemic. 
called current expected credit losses. And Mike probably knows about this because he's a super credit analyst. So, um, so basically they had to project in the middle of the pandemic, the worst possible scenario that could happen with their credit book if the economists were right and you had 20% unemployment and you had negative 12% GDP and, and, and. So uh, Wells had to take $20 billion in loan loss reserves on the basis of if the world ends, what will you lose in your credit book in the worst case scenario, which is probably unprecedented and never happened. And our thesis was, if it's slightly better than Dr. Doom or others predict, then all of these reserves are gonna come back as earnings. Remember from Phoenix, Phoenix companies, which is why I showed the story. And that's exactly what happened. Over the next few quarters, as things got better, as the lockdowns uh, unwound, what you saw was that these, these earnings started coming back and within months, uh, it went from 25 to 50 and laid off in, in the mid 50s. And we never had an expectation due to history that we would be in this much beyond because even during the credit crisis, um, you know, it, it basically reverted back to the mean. There, there, was no, there was no catalyst that was gonna make Wells Fargo more valuable than it was pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, other than reversing those, those credit reserves. Does that make sense? So in the case of range resources, we haven't, in our estimation, we haven't hit intrinsic value. In the case of Wells Fargo, it was very simple. Oh, we're back to one times book in a kind of dicey environment, we're out. And but that was the game plan going in, right? So you know, all wars are won before they, they're started, right? All battles are won before they're started. So that was, that was the situation. Now, second thing is you had energy trading at negative 28. Now I'm not brilliant, but I figured if they had to pay people $28 a barrel to get rid of their oil, they probably weren't gonna do that very long and, and uh, they might actually close up some of the wells. I know the guys this morning would tell you they'll never close any wells, but if they were paying you $28 a barrel, they'd close those wells. Uh, so we thought that was unrealistic, but it was a very dicey situation. So what did we have to do? We had to go for the highest quality. So I couldn't be buying, um, you know, startup EMP companies or Carrizo oil and gas or whatever was trading down 90% at the time. I couldn't take market risk and company risk simultaneously. I'm only one willing to take one big risk at a time. And the big risk was market risk. I wasn't gonna take company risk. And that's why we honed in on, what, you know, when you think of energy, you think Chevron or Exxon, right? So this was kind of a no brainer. I knew they weren't going out of business. I was kind of counting on them cutting the dividend. That was like a foregone conclusion. But, you know, they were trading at a big discount to book, PV10, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and this is interesting. You had the largest short in energy in 20 years. So as narrow as that door was on the last example I gave, I mean, you probably couldn't even fit through it sideways as people were getting out of it here. Uh, and we didn't get this first ride down. We got, we waited until the next ride down because number one, we, we missed that. We were focused on the indices during the initial flush because we wanted to be in the highest, we, we needed 500 margins of safety, S&P 500. And then as things settled down, we're like, this is, this is getting ridiculous. Um, and that was, that was Exxon. And now, if I had bought the Carrizos and the, the small EMPs, would I have made more than, you know, double? And by the way, we're not that brilliant because we sold out in early of last year, 
And for those of you who know, last year, uh, it kept going, <laughs> okay? But that wasn't our trade and we're not momentum takers and we don't think we're gonna get the exact bottom and we don't think we're gonna get the exact top, which is why we never enter 100% of a position at once or rarely do and rarely exit 100% of a position all at once. We do it when it hits our estimations of fair value. Okay, so some big ideas for 2023. Uh, in our view, we're in all of these positions, full disclosure. Uh, we have been since last year. Uh, first is Alibaba. Uh, second is Biotech as a basket. I'm not smart enough to pick the winners. What we don't do is guess what's happening next. So I'm not the guy who's gonna tell you if Mio is gonna be the winner in China. There are smarter people that do that. You know, you got Ron Barron, you got Bally Gifford. Those are the guys for that. I'm the guy who looks at a business that's been around for 10, 20, 30 years. I see how they've operated through cycles. I understand management. I understand the business. I understand the liquidation value. And when it's impaired, I'm interested. Uh, I'm not smart enough to do that. that what's next game? I, I leave that for others. So uh, let's get through these and then I can take some questions. Okay. Okay, my favorite one, Alibaba. So, I've never seen a situation where the price was so disconnected from the fundamentals for such a high quality business that had a meaningful moat. This reminds me of Microsoft in 2013 before it took off on a historic run. So everyone knows Microsoft. Well, Microsoft went through a period after the antitrust stuff where it basically traded sideways for most of the 2000s. The interesting thing about that sideways period, the stock did nothing, okay? So you're saying, wow, the game must have had a rough patch. You know, sales must have been kind of flattish. You know, Bomber missed mobile. Like, how could you miss mobile? He didn't get mobile right. He didn't get anything right. Except, over the seven years when the stock price did nothing from 2006 to 2013, revenues were up 112%. That's in seven years, 112%. It's not the fastest growing company in the world, but you wouldn't have thought, huge Microsoft, 112%. Cash flow per share, was up 193%. Seven year period, stock price did nothing. Actually, this is the period, stock price did nothing. Cash flows up 200%. Imagine if you owned a business. Imagine you owned an apartment building, okay? 2,000 units, you've raised rents by 200% over five years over seven years, you bought the building seven, let's say you bought the building seven years ago for $10 million. You've raised rents by 200%. Your cash flow is up 193%. Expenses have gone up a little bit. And someone comes in and says, I'd like to buy your building for $10 million. Wait, I bought it for 10 million. My cash flow is up 200% from when I bought it and you're offering me the same price that I paid for it? <coughs> and that's exactly what happens in the public markets for public companies. And that's exactly what happened with Microsoft. So. It's kind of like a balloon submerged underwater. You can hold it down so long, but eventually price catches up with earning power and cash flow. It's just an economic arbitrage. And what, what happened here over the next seven years, Microsoft returned 1500%, which was a CAGR of 36% a year since 2013 when I wrote this. It's, it may be even up more. So ah, this is a better example. This period from this period to this period, stock price, it's zero, revenue's up 100, cash flow up 193, earning. So you see the levels of euphoria despondency? What, where were we here? Despondency, right? No movement in price, 
huge movement in, in economics. By the way, over the next seven years, when the stock went up 1,500%, the growth rate collapsed relative to this. So the market's a discounting mechanism, okay? And, and that's, it worked on a lag basis, and, uh, and that's that. So Satya Nadella is given a lot of credit, but don't underestimate what Bomber created before Satya took the, took the reins. Bomber laid the groundwork, Satya took the reins. That's why people say like, oh, when Republicans are in power and the market does worse, and when Democrats are in power or vice versa. Look at what foundations were laid the four years before. Well, first off, I don't think politics ultimately has that much to do with the market. Although everyone thinks it and trades on it, fundamentally, all that matters is this. These are the numbers that make the stocks do this, okay? Now, why am I spending so much time on Microsoft? Because, got it? It reminds me a lot of Alibaba. Alibaba. So for the last seven years, here's where we're at. This is a little bit old, but it's the same same price basically. It's traded, it's traded between 100 and 120 um, for the last since June, give or take. Okay, and basically from IPO to 2022, revenues are up 894%. Cash flow per share is up 559%. Earnings per share up 600%. Share price is up 0%. Okay, very much like what you saw with Microsoft. Now you can say, but, 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 politics. Why do you think Microsoft was trading so secure? But, 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 politics, right? Antitrust, they got off track. People worried about government regulation. They had to fight that whole thing out from 2000 to 2005. Same exact situation now. The difference is the politics have shifted in the last three months. And for the first time in history, the Chinese government has said, uh, we usually re-stimulate an economy through infrastructure <coughs> investment. This time we're gonna do it a little different. We're going to put all of the stimulus into consumption. And what Alibaba is, Alibaba is a toll taker. If you're gonna consume anything in China, you're gonna pay a toll, like you, to get over the, well, the Brooklyn Bridge doesn't have a toll, but the George Washington Bridge, I grew up in Jersey, has a toll. And all the consumption that's gonna be done in China over the next two years, and by the way, the government set a 5% GDP target for this year, I think that's conservative now with the opening, is gonna come through Alibaba. So all the foundation that has been laid over the last seven years with no benefit to the owners. As this goes into the next phase, I think we're gonna see a monster benefit for the owners moving forward. Next. Um, this is the Hang Seng. Last time the rubber band got stretched this far relative to the rest of the world, it redounded 156% over the next 17 months. This means many of the individual stocks in the index were up 200 to 250% over the same period. So, this just shows, uh, we're going to show how when the Hang Seng, which Alibaba is a big weight of, one of the top weights, uh, trades down below book, what happens to the indices over the, uh, over the subsequent 18 months or so. This shows Alibaba's uh, PE multiple over time. So again, this is a despondent multiple. We know the intrinsic value, the business has grown, orders of magnitude, the price has not grown. So we know there's an untapped intrinsic value there. Uh, 
currently training 11 times next year. We'll see what they guide uh, next week. But I think next week's earnings, remember the <coughs> quarter was shut down, fourth quarter. So that might be your last opportunity to buy in the mid-90s in our view. Uh, and then kind of from there, it's, it's off to the races over time. So, uh, and by the way, that multiple 11.5 compares with this historic multi average multiple of 28 times. But everyone went through the door last year. They couldn't get rid of it fast enough. Why? Delisting, which you can own it in Hong Kong, all the other noise, Xi Jinping. By the way, I thought the one thing Michael Burry said, which I, I don't, you know, he generally is pessimistic, but he said something brilliant. Everyone was worried about Xi Jinping as it relates to Chinese equities. And he said, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So, well, you know, while Bob was up 300%, 200% before it came down, Xi Jinping was still running the show. So it's kind of noise. It's the cyclicality. You pay attention to the intrinsic value of the underlying business over time, that's where you win. But when Hong Kong Hang Seng is trading below book, what happens historically? 1998, Hang Seng is up 156% the next 17 months. 2008, 110%. 2016, 82.5% in 23 months. And 2020, 35% in 11 months. Now, you're like, oh, 35%, 80%, what's the big deal? The big deal is, that's the indices. Imagine if the S&P 500 was up 156% in 17 months. What do you think some of the underlying components do, like the major weights? They're up two, three, 400%. You know, even in the case of a 35%, you know you have tons of stocks in the index that are up 100, 150%. And the key is buying the ones that are most undervalued relative to intrinsic value that are quality businesses, not dog, you know what businesses, high quality business, cash generative businesses. We do the boring, stable, steady stuff versus uh, the high flying stuff. It's just not our, our nature. But the high flyers, those guys uh, can, can kill it too. Uh, just not, not my skill set. Um, okay, so this just gives you an idea of the magnitude of these. Oh, by the way, so just to re-emphasize that, so what happened uh, 2016? So the indices were up 62%. This was the Hang Seng when it traded below book. 62, what did Baba do? 234. 234 is much better than 62. So you get that same euphoria versus despondency theme that I've been talking about. Um, and I think we're... Close to the end here. Biotech, we'll go through quickly because I got, she just gave me the five minute. Uh, we just did a quantitative study of, of where biotech stocks are trading as a group relative to their historic average multiple. Implies the sector should appreciate 24% to get back to its average price to book multiple, 155% to get back to its average price to operating cash flow multiple and 112% to get back to its average forward PE multiple. So we think there's upside. We're not smart enough to pick the names that are gonna do it, so we just buy the basket. This was the last tightening, the Fed, last Fed tightening cycle, just so you know, when they stopped, you know, you had uh, basically 150% uh, appreciation back to there, and we're starting that path now as we get closer to the end of the tightening cycle. Uh, next, uh, biotech. So again, that was the typing cycle. These are the, this is the data that we use to kind of share some of those stats with you. Uh, and then finally, okay, Cooper Standard, this is the last one. So we put this out publicly on Fox Business on the Claimant Countdown on June 7th. It was trading at $6. 
We also uh, put it out publicly on the podcast in May. Uh, I was trading at, uh, our basis is 550. Uh, it traded down to, we started buying at six, it traded down to 358, our basis is 550. Um, so here's why we bought the company. So this stock is down 141%, $141 down to, it got down to $3.58. Why would we buy it? There's obviously bankruptcy risk. So our bet was that there was a catalyst coming, they would get refinanced. Why were we confident that they would get refinanced in a crappy market like last year? Was because they had huge asset coverage. Remember balance sheet, you gotta look at the assets, meaning they could liquidate the whole company and the debt would be made whole. So who wouldn't take that deal if they could give them 10 or 13% money for the short term until they refinance it when credit, credit markets uh, improve? So this is uh, the May-June period. You can see very volatile. It's not evident in a monthly bar, but you know it is what it is. Uh, this, by the way, has come back down to 15, just so you know, they reported on Friday. Uh, if you know anything about the auto industry, uh, sales were weak in December. So that was what they just reported, October, November, December. Sales jumped 5.9%, new car sales jumped 5.9% in January. So prospectively, but that's, that's not the reason we're in the business quarterly. The reason we're in the business, uh, first off, we buy the jockey, right? Are these scumbags that are gonna take a deal from private equity and get, get new equity and screw the existing shareholders? Or do these guys have a consistent history of respecting equity? Well, I talked to the company, uh, management respects equity. They brought down the share count over the years. Uh, versus give themselves tons of stock and dilute the shareholders. Uh, their management comp, which is very unusual, is tied to return on invested capital. That's very important to me. I wanna know that management can compound the invested capital that they've been given at a respectable rate, at least at the level that general indices can, and hopefully closer to a level that I can. So uh, third, the operating leverage in this business is unparalleled coming out of industry troughs. Uh, fourth, the refinancing would get done to the asset covered. I got the idea because Charlie Munger did a same, the same trade in the 2001 recession. Auto business is very cyclical. These guys only supplied to new car providers. Tenneco, which Buffett did, which uh, Munger did, supplied to new end used cars. Um, but Tenneco was down from like $18 in 2000 to a buck 61. They had the same risk, a billion dollars of debt to refinance. In 2001, no one thought they could get the refinancing done. There's an article in Barron's, Munger read it. He bought the stock at a buck 61 or something like that. Uh, he put 10 million in, turned it into 80 million over the next year and a half when the refinancing done. He gave that 80 million to Li Lu, the Chinese manager. Uh, Li Lu turned the 80 into a half a billion. Two chess moves, half a billion dollars. So this repository of seeing thousands of things over the years of my career, I said, this is the exact same setup. I want to get involved. Um, and, uh, and that's it. The only difference was the asset coverage was better on this than it was on Tenneco when, when uh, Munger bought Tenneco. Because I didn't make the decision off an article in Barron's. But, um, uh, so that's Cooper saying. Now, uh, they got the refinancing done, so this is kind of dated. Uh, there, there will now be no maturities before 2027. So we believe bankruptcy is basically off the table. All we have to do uh, is so based on their operational improvement, flow of semiconductors, this whole thing was predicated on when the semiconductors come back. The reason we got into it in May, June is because we saw the semiconductor supply starting to come back as demand for phones and computers died down. They were reallocating their capacity utilization into 
auto chips. They didn't all come out overnight, but I knew once that started to flow, new car production would flow and they get paid every new car that's produced, okay? Uh, globally, they're, like, they're top three in all these things. So, um, okay, now, and the average car on the road right now is 13.1 years. Uh, so, they're top three in ceiling systems, that goes around the windows, uh, freight, fuel, and brake delivery systems, fluid transfer systems. So number three globally, number two globally, and number one globally. So unlike the great financial crisis where original equipment manufacturers, OEMs, GM, Ford, etc., were could care less if their suppliers went bankrupt because they went bankrupt, Ford didn't go bankrupt, but GM did and Chrysler did. This time, they've got more demand than they do supply, so they couldn't afford to have one of their top suppliers go bankrupt, and that's why they gave them pricing concessions and gave them in-based contracts, which means we're gonna get two bites at the apple. Not only are they recovering the industry, but actually the margins are margin improvement as well. Um, by the way, it's a, it's a covert, it's not in our model, it's a covert green play because on every ICE car, they, they give eight parts, on every EV, they do 20 parts. They make 20% more per EV car than for IC. I was worried, I'm like, auto parts, EVs, less parts, they're gonna get screwed. It's just the opposite because they do the cooling systems and all that other stuff. Um, so they got it done. So the stock shot up off that catalyst, that's nice. It was uh, up 300 something percent at one point. Now it's 200 and 200 uh, percent. But that's not why we're in the stock. Why we're in the stock? <laughs> this is what they did in 2017, based on a normalized auto production number: 3.6 top line, 456 million of EBITDA. On that, they earned $7.20 a share. So as um, so, this is their uh, guidance as of Friday. So they're going to do about 150 to 175 million of EBITDA. Uh, up from 37 million this year. Okay, so we believe that not only will they revert back to seven dollars a share, somewhere between five and eight, let's just say, uh, but they're going to have the increased margin because of the composition of the mix. Uh, and at eight dollars a share, their peak multiple at 2007 when it was trading at 141 was 20 times. Their trough multiple when they were earning was 10 times. Got it. And um, so, you know, even if you're conservative, you say they trade a trough multiple and they don't earn 70, they earn, they don't earn seven, they earn five. I think, it, you know, it's still, it's still attractive in our view. It's trading at $15 a share. Correct, yeah. So it may, it may take a couple more days to cool off after the earnings and then, you know, there might, might be, you know, opportunity. So um, that's our view and I think we're done. Any questions? So, oh, by the way, this just, just shows you, that was 2017, we got down to here, we're slowly climbing back up, we get to here, this is seven, eight dollars a share. Okay, anything, any questions before we wrap up? Yeah, yeah. So what's the uh, price target on Cooper Standard? Based on that For price? me? Yeah. Um, I mean, you just do the numbers in terms of like five to eight dollars at a 10 to 20 times multiple, and then cut it in half because you want to be conservative. Okay. So we'll lay some off at a 10 times multiple, we'll lay some off at a 15, we'll hold some and, and wait for the euphoria as well as the design. So $50? Plus, plus, plus. plus. Okay. Yeah, the, we'll, the we'll lay off. Yeah. We would. And we're back. I uh, hope you found that helpful. It really was a great weekend, but let's move on to what we've got to cover this week. 
The intelligent investor is the realist who sells to the optimist and buys from the pessimist. That's Benjamin Graham. I did promise we'd do a few ratio charts last week in this week. So I do want to give you some update on sectors. As we had anticipated, the last shall be first. The uh, REITs are coming off the bottom with relative outperformance to the S&P. Uh, so we think there's still opportunity there. KWeb, the China internet, shot up like a rocket. It's consolidating. The key reason we're going to cover in just a little bit, it's not, yes, you have the geopolitical headwinds. Yes, you have all that noise. But you saw Baidu's earnings yesterday were great. Baba's earnings uh, we're going to discuss now were fantastic. The key problem is the same problem that we had in the fall. It's a currency trade and the dollar is in a counter trend bounce. And when the dollar is strengthening on the basis of the Fed now has to do more than people anticipated, which we're also going to cover, um, uh, emerging markets in China will weaken. Alibaba is a big weight in China, but have no fear that dollar counter trend bounce and is near. And uh, what you're going to see is the dollar starts to uh, weaken again and go back in its downtrend. These things are going to take off for their next leg. So don't worry about that. Uh, same thing with bonds, uh, et cetera. The most hawkish guy on the Fed, Bullard, was out yesterday uh, calling for much less than people had thought, 534 terminal rate, which means we're basically two or three 25 basis points away. And then the game is over for the dollar. Uh, and, and as we get closer to that, the game is over. We don't have to wait three meetings till June. Uh, I think we're going to start to see it in guidance. So, uh, so, so bonds should start to rally in coming weeks, maybe, maybe month. Same thing with the uh, dollar should start to roll back over in weeks, maybe month. Um, and that will help the China emerging markets trade. Uh, biotech again ripped off the the May lows has been consolidating sideways for um, uh, few, you know about six months here. It's not dissimilar to our our model, which has been the uh, 2016 to 2018. Got this consolidation, and this is the ratio chart. But the actual XBI went up to new highs within the two years. And if we get that, that's going to be a monster, monster trade that we're in. Uh, materials, again, remember everyone was pushing at the end of last year. They're rolling over, uh, which is why I don't like Freeport, by the way. The market's a discounting mechanism. Everyone's like, well, all the infrastructure coming. Well, no kidding. We knew that last year. That's why they ran up. Um, communication services, again, we, we pounded the table on that at the end of last year. Ripped up like um, uh, Amazon. It's come back a little bit because of the dollar, because of the the trade because of seasonal weakness end of February, which you heard in the Yahoo and the uh, Fox business clips. So uh, so we continue to like that uh, energy rolling over. We think uh, we're just not buyers in the short term. We do think some of the natural gas stocks like we covered uh, range and Comstock last week. If you had to get energy exposure, that's where we would be focused. That's where we think there's opportunity. The EMPs, they're just not, uh, they haven't come in enough yet for us to get interested again. Um, uh, banks, same thing. We, you know, you know, energy, actually, as a matter of fact, you just saw on the money show. <laughs> we were interested here. Uh, banks, we were interested here. We're not as interested uh, in either one. Uh, industrials, very selective. These, these things have run. Uh, tech is starting to get legs. That's just going to be a dollar and the... Um, the dollar and the the uh, dollar weakness and uh, bonds starting to get bid. That's going to be a, a couple of weeks off. 
Uh, we just have a counter trend rally we have to deal with and the hawk talk, etc. cetera. Uh, staples, not for us. Utilities, not really. Short term, they'll work because of the, the February seasonal weakness. If the market's heavy, the defensives will work, but they had their run last year, um, et cetera. Discretionary, they rallied off the lows. Remember, we were hammering the, them in December uh, you know, to get involved. They had this huge rally. They're just taking a breather right now. They'll resume uptrend. So nothing's changed in our thesis. We just wanted to update you because they're all taking a consolidation breather after having a monster, monster move. Now, Alibaba earnings. Um, Alibaba repurchased about three, $3.3 billion of shares. They still have a lot of authorization. Their revenue, despite the country being locked down, 60% of the country being locked down in the Q4, uh, was up 2% year on year. The big deal in my view, uh, and the reason we're using adjusted EBITDA and non-GAAP net income up 16% and up 12% is because like their numbers were much higher. It was like plus 76% year on year, but it was because they got a goodwill reversal benefit, which is just nonsense, one-time non-recurring accounting. The real numbers are here, but the, for me, the most important real number is their free cash flow is up 15% year on year. You just can't make this up. The country shut down. How do they possibly pull this off? Well, you, you know, so you can start with record revenues. How they did that? Well, we're going to get into the granularity of it. But before we do, I do want to cover this chart from my buddy over at RBC, uh, who wishes to remain anonymous. Uh, you know, uh, here's the counter trend rally and here's what the, their technicians are saying. Short term momentum is becoming overbought for the US dollar. Uh, the recent bounce rallies back to the first resistance near 104.7 with 105.6, 106.4 in the next resistance. Uh, near term peak is likely to develop in the coming one to two weeks from their lips to God's ears. When they're right, uh, the China stocks are going to rip again because uh, the fundamentals are ripping. So that's great. And then the loony, my adopted country here will uh start to resume its uptrend rally which is pretty exciting uh against the u.s dollar so that's that uh that's from sumit by the way he's been a follower of our uh podcast for over two years and uh he's all in on the baba last year so he he puts out some good stuff on twitter if you want to follow him uh, to check that out so some highlights here um uh, the revenues, uh, income from operations, we covered all of this. Um, the real number was uh, adjusted EBITDA was 29%. Uh, net loss attributable to uh, ordinary. Wait a second. Oh, this is the wrong quarter. I was like, these numbers don't look right. Here's the right quarter. Okay, this is the, <laughs> this is the presentation. I'm like, I thought it was 2%. <laughs> okay, there we go. So we got that. Uh, let's let's look at what worked and what didn't, despite the thing was shut down. This is all rear view. I didn't expect anything, but since it was so good, let's go through it. China Commerce was down 1%. That is a miracle unto itself. I mean, with 60% of the country shut down last quarter, uh, pretty exciting to see. Next was International Commerce galloped up 18% year on year. That's 8% of their revenues, but it's growing uh, that's a huge, huge jump. Uh, next was uh, local consumer services up 6%. Uh, China, that's a one-stop shop in logistics, twenty up 27%. That's 7% of revenue. The cloud, 
was somewhat disappointing but still grew three percent that's a big part of our bull thesis is the cloud so um the thing that i would say about that is it's very hard to get excited about enterprise spending and digitization when the government shut down your factory. So <laughs> that was certainly the case in Q4. Uh, so I think that will reaccelerate and that's gonna be the key point uh, portion for operating margin moving forward and increased uh, operating earnings. So we definitely wanna pay attention to the cloud, but it's nice to see it was up 3%. I had zero expectations. And these tiny businesses that represent 3% and 0% uh, innovation was down they probably just cut spending and digital media and entertainment was down uh, as well so um, uh, earnings per share were up seven diluted earnings per share uh, adjusted EBITDA up 16 percent uh, there we go non-gap diluted earnings per share I was gonna say up 76 percent that's that goodwill uh, one-time benefit the earnings per share were up 14%, adjusted EBITDA was up 16%, and we already talked about cash flow. Let me just see if there's some key things I wanted to cover. Uh, so this was the China commerce, international commerce. Uh, increased revenue contributed by Trendyol trend resulted in robust year-over-year year order growth. So that was the big grower in the international Local consumer services was up 6%. That was Ellie Mae. That competes with Maituan. Then you have Kainau, uh, domestic and international one-stop shop logistics services and supply chain management solutions. This one had a big jump of 27%. So that was exciting to see. And then the cloud, uh, if you remember, they were losing um, some TikTok business that's the internet business so their internet was down and the education stocks uh, on a uh, comparable basis so the internet was down four percent year over year but the rest of their business is growing nine percent year over year and contributed 53 percent of overall cloud revenue so uh, revenue from financial services education's picking back up automobile industries um, so that is is a positive to see and we'll see how that rebounds in the quarters ahead when, as the country is open moving right along we want to cover cooper standard which reported last week uh been a busy week my goodness so uh we were you know december retail sales across the industry were soft so we knew these were going to be soft we talked about it as much in recent calls uh, but the key was going to be the guidance moving forward, which was fantastic. But there was a lot more positive in this report than I had anticipated. Number one was the new business re reward awards uh, shot the lights out. So uh, they got 246 million of new business awards relative to 186 million the year before. And 80% of those is EV business Um which has a higher margin by about they make about 20 percent more per ev than per ice so it's really positive to see that the other thing that i wanted to cover was uh okay so their margins were up um and they also guided that they're going to be cash flow positive this year which is really exciting to see uh you can see here sales were up year on year from 601 to 649 that's positive EBITDA was up from 2 million of adjusted EBITDA last uh, last Q4 2021 
Q4 2022, they had 28 million of EBITDA. So their volume and mix is going through the roof, partially offset by materials and uh, in general inflation, etc. But everything is going in the right direction. The things that they can control, volume and mix, manufacturing, purchasing uh, equipment, SGA and E, uh, restructuring savings, etc. So sales are going up, margins are going up, everything's going up. And that's before we even get a real burst of industry volumes picking up. Uh, year on year, their sales went from 2.3 to 2.5 billion, which is good. And their adjusted EBITDA went from negative uh, 8 million in 2021 to 38 million in 2022. So they missed, they, they met their, um, uh, right, right in line with their expectations, which was really, um, I would say medium probability when they were putting it out mid year, it didn't look good. And they, and they were able to manage to get the job done despite some short, some industry headwinds. So it was really, really good to see. Um, this is liquidity, but that's backward looking. This is forward looking. So now all of their, they got the refinancing done, which was the first part of our thesis, which is what shot the stock up over 15, it's $15. Now it was like $18 for a minute. That'll work higher over time as we get more guidance and industry volumes kick in. That's really all we need. They're, they're executing on all cylinders. They just need the volume to come, uh, which we know will come because the managed scarcity that the uh, US OEMs have benefited from during the supply shortage uh, is yesterday's news that the Japanese are gonna start to glut the market, particularly at the low end, which is underserved, and the US ones are gonna have to follow suit. Uh, and uh, the good news for CPS is it doesn't matter if it's the Japanese or the US, uh, they make money selling parts to all of them and, um, and all the EV makers. So that is really exciting. With bankruptcy off the table, this was a real risk. I mean, we had notes due in 2024. They all got pushed out three years, which is more than sufficient time. Their guidance now is mid-range is 2.7 billion. They're gonna jump again next year. But the big thing is they're gonna jump again from you know negative 8 million of EBITDA to 38 million of EBITDA to now they're guiding 150 to 175 million EBITDA. That is huge. Because if you remember at 400 million EBITDA in 2017, which is our target, uh, they earned $7.20 a share. And uh, so they're halfway there and we're, we're, we haven't even started the volume expansion in the industry. Just think as we get out to 2023, 2024 and 2025, when those cars get, get, start to get towards um, 2017 levels, and they're doing five, six, seven, eight, eight dollars. I think they can do more this this cycle. Eight dollars a share, and then whatever multiple you assign to it, ten trough multiple, uh, twenty peak multiple. It could be very, very exciting. Um, and uh, and that's that. They've got very low assumptions on light vehicle production uh, across the spectrum. I think it's going to be higher than this, but let's just say. And they even acknowledged in the call. Uh, we're being very conservative and it could come in higher and that's that's great I'd rather have them be too conservative and miss to the upside than too optimistic and miss to the downside uh, and so they're going to pick up the EBITDA from um, uh, volume and price mix purchasing they'll lose a bit on wages and other and that's how they get to their 163 midpoint uh, moving forward and so these are the platforms. We've gone through this pitch, you actually heard it. Uh, this is the industry volume projections back up to 85 million. 
uh, here they're talking about uh, Cooper Standard expected EV sales CAGR. They expect their EV demand to grow at 43% CAGR. So that's going to dramatically outpace. And the 198 million of new EV business awards in 2022, that's 80% of their total net new business awards for the year for uh, war for EV. And remember, they make 20% more on EV than they do on ICE. So that six, seven, eight dollars a share could be conservative because that's all based on ICE volumes. If it's if the EV mix becomes material, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe they could do peak 480, 500 million of EBITDA. That would be a monster. But we take it step by step and we adapt as we get data on a quarterly basis. But that was exciting to see. Uh, just an anecdote, AutoNation overtakes profit estimates as new vehicle demand improves. This is from February 17th. Uh, Rolls-Royce shares soar by 23% after annual results crush expectations. Uh, so that was that. Uh, quick few bullets from, from Rolls-Royce. Uh, strong new order wins in civil and aer aerospace and defense and a record order book in power systems. Underlying operating profit of 652 million pounds, 238 million higher than the prior year with the increase driven by civil aerospace and power systems. Free cash flow from continuing operations of 505 million pounds, 2 billion higher than the prior year because the prior year was negative free cash flow led by engine flying hour recovery. That's what we talked about. That, that gives them the servicing hours. Uh, net debt load has come down from three, uh, it's now 3.3 billion down from 5.2 billion uh, due to disposals and improved cash flow. So uh, that's that. Very positive. Look at the revenue growth. Operating profit, operating margins increased, profits and earnings per share, I mean, dramatic. So, and free cash flow plus 500, uh, $505 billion versus negative 1.5 billion pounds. So that's exciting. And I think this story is just beginning. Very exciting. Like always, you always wish you had bigger size, but this is the right size for the right risk. Uh, and that's going to be a major contributor over the next couple of years. Um, so you can see revenue up 14, gross profit 22, operating profit 48, free cash flow. That's the most important number in the deck in my view. Uh, obviously, you know, you can see their defense uh, was up the least. That's I think that's going to improve. The power systems was up the most 23%. Uh, no, uh, it was up 23%. Their new markets was up 50, but it's a tiny little business, so it doesn't really matter. Uh, that could include the SMR type business, the small nuclear reactors. That's going to be a major part of their business 10 years out. That doesn't really matter right now, but it's good for the story. And um, and they're paying down debt. So they're now at $3.3 They were at $5.2. So this is really an awesome leverage turnaround story. And as I'd said in the past, the British government wouldn't, wouldn't let them go bankrupt. We were just worried about how much equity they would have to take. Um, but now it looks like it's it's moving in the right direction. And wait till the China, you know, international flights really take hold. That's going to be phenomenal. Uh, big turn in Chinese traffic in major cities. You can see here congestion level higher than any time uh, in 2022 as people return to the cities. So um, just a monster, monster li after they lifted the um, lockdowns. 
So that data continues to improve. Couple news points here. And then we'll get to the article and the questions of the week. Beijing City announces plan to support AI development. Uh, Baidu and Baba are major players in that space. China quietly pivots from land sale limits to stand housing slumps, so more easing. China stocks could rise another 20%, Goldman Sachs says. Here's how. Um, next, China leaders pledge stronger growth recovery as recovery takes hold. Um, uh, Xi Jinping led a meeting of the Communist Party's Politburo Tuesday, reiterating plans to expand the economy and improve the quality of growth, according to a report in state media CCTV. Comments were largely a repeat of December's speech, which he vowed to boost market confidence and increase domestic demand. Remember, this is going to be consumption-driven. The Politburo meeting comes ahead of the National People's Congress in early March. This is the next big catalyst. Provided the dollar has stopped going up, this one will be rocket fuel to Baba after having such great earnings. So we wait uh, with bated breath. Uh, excited to see that Chinese provinces give <laughs> Chinese provinces give 30 days paid quote marriage leave to boost the birth rate. So they they realize that the writing's on the wall and they don't want to become the next Japan and uh, probably too little too late. But that does not impair our thesis that the next three to five years is going to be a last parabolic run like Japan had in the late 80s. Uh, this is on the U.S. Bullard still favors hiking rates to 5.375. Well, we're at 555, 475 right now. So the market has already been looking for one to two, 25 bips. He's the most hawkish guy. He's, he's calling for three. Uh, at, he's not a voting member. So that means consensus is probably at two. And if the data would get better, it's just going to be a question of timing. Because as you, um, as we covered in the Yahoo clip, uh, the owner's equivalent rent and the new leases as that rolls off, those are going to hit hard in May, June, July, uh, hopefully before it'll be drop enough that, the you know, if they go two hikes, March and May, uh, they can pause and not have to do a third one in June and we're done. And the market will sniff that out. The dollar will sniff that out. Jeremy Siegel says earnings estimates on Wall Street have a higher chance of being met as recession risk ease. We agree. Uh, article of the week was the Larry David pretty, pretty, pretty good stock market and sentiment results. In last week's note, we reiterated our case from October that the pain trade was up in the first half of the year despite the short-term seasonal headwinds and possibility of near-term weakness. Read full note for context. Uh, here was the, the words from last week. I'm fully aware that after taking such an unconventional position in the fall bullish position and following up with this note prospectively that the market is, quote, likely to consolidate and pull back within minutes of me hitting the publish button. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. However, what may or may not happen in the short term has nothing to do with what happens in the next six to 12 months. And we are constructive, irrespective of any short term noise or digestion. So you can he see here the seasonal historic tendencies. This is from Ryan Dietrich uh, in February. We also posted this chart showing it, it had broken this downtrend and it was consolidating back to this inverse head and shoulders line and it could potentially go back to the downtrend line. Well, that's exactly what it did. It went back to the downtrend line. We seem to be holding that at the moment, which would be a natural consolidation, maybe grind sideways for a little before resuming the uptrend. Um, okay, so we covered that. Thanks, Shauna, Dave Briggs, um, Taylor Clothier, and Sydney Freed. We covered that covered this with Cheryl. Thanks, Cheryl Cassoni, Liz Clayman, Catherine Myers, and Jake Mack over at Fox. 
and with Phil, uh, thanks long, long way Zeng and Phil. Now, uh, as far as pretty, pretty, pretty good, while most of what you have found in the last few months is negativity, while the market rocketed higher 18.5% off the October lows, here are some concepts we've been reminding our viewers of weekly. This weekend, I spoke at The Money Show. Uh, one of the other speakers was Jeff Hirsch of the legendary Stock Traders Almanac. His dad, Yale, invented. I remember uh, at the first fund I worked at, we all had the Stock Traders Almanac on our desk. Uh, you remember, may remember this table we put out in January pointing to good things for 2023, meaning if the Santa Claus rally is positive, the first five days of January is positive, and January is positive, then it implies the 87% uh, chance that the next uh, remainder of the year would be 15.9%. If we all get triggered, then it would be 17%. They all got triggered, so he pointed to that. And then if we get a February up also, the remainder of the year would be 20%. We'll see about February. There's some time to go, but um, certainly the the trifecta was triggered, and his data points to an average of 22.1% when the trifecta is figured. Uh, um, um, tripped and that's his data since 1949 which is probably why it skews up a little bit um this is a visual of the four-year presidential cycle in midterm bear markets which we had so you can see the green line is the tendency the composite of all the previous instances we've been tracking close to that and this is a normal consolidation halfway up and that's what i've been talking about guys we're going to have this monster rally in the first half we've been talking about since the fourth quarter that no one's positioned for because everyone said down first half up second half instead we're going to be up first half huge and then when everyone gets in we're going to grind sideways to the end of the year and no one's going to make money we're going to get first we're going to, once we get everyone in like i said with um shauna and dave Markets don't bottom when everyone's overweight bond. Uh, markets don't top when everyone's overweight bonds. They top when everyone's overweight stocks. And that'll be here. We got another half to run here. And as that pushes up, max pain for everyone overweight in bonds right now. Once they finally get in, we're going to get that pullback uh, immediately and then grind sideways for the rest of the year is my bet. Um, and um, so so that's, that's the opportunity. Um, more on the trifecta and the seasonal cycles and how we're tracking. It's from my friend over at RBC. Uh, the trend is your friend. So this is the S&P. It's still in this range despite last year feeling like it just was an overshoot in euphoria, uh, undershoot in despondency, and now we just continue to grind up. Um, labor supply coming back online. We covered that on Yahoo. And the last shall be first theme that we pounded the table on in Q4 uh, is playing out in spades. What was the last emerging markets and REITs and the S&P? What's first? S&P, REITs, emerging markets, and Europe are third and fourth, or fourth and third, uh, and we think that's going to persist. The, uh, Tom Lee, who we talk about uh, over at fundstrat.com, he was also a speaker. He was a keynote at the Money Show this weekend. Got to spend a little time with him, and we talked about these items in recent months, but here's the updated data that he does uh, over at fundstrat.com. Uh, CPI components in deflation is now above 30%. That's a positive signal. As you can see in the early 80s when everyone was worried, once it broke that, that was when uh, Volcker pivoted and said may shift tactics and we were off to the races for a long-term bull market. Wall Street pessimism is pervasive. The uh, upside is um, uh, consensus upside Consensus year-end targets is 4,200. 
uh, when everyone's at bearish, I think, you know, last year, I think it was 4,800. We wound up at whatever we wound up at 3,800. This year's 4,200. My guess is we're going to end up a lot higher. Um, even grinding higher, grinding the second half. We're going to make a lot of the gains in the first half is our view. High yield market is healing, breaking out. High yield signal, uh, S&P returns strong after a negative high yield yield year historically. Average up 22% for the S&P a year following a negative high yield year. Uh, and then more data about the S&P bottoming. We've been talking about the JP Morgan data. S&P bottomed six to nine months before earnings bottomed. So even if you think earnings are going lower, market bottomed in October. And uh, his data actually points to uh, 11 to 12 months before earnings bottom because he goes back to 1921. We only go back to 1950. So kudos to him. Um, market breadth is improving. He goes through all these uh, breath thrusts, the Whaley breath thrust, the Walter Deemer breakaway momentum, and the ultra breath thrust. Uh, the net effect is the average 12-month returns are over 20% going out with a 100% win ratio when those three trigger. We'll see. I, I, I tend to be in that camp. So in short, uh, despite the short-term consolidation, the intermediate-term outlook for equities is pretty, pretty, pretty good. Uh, on to the short-term retail sentiment. Uh, retail traders got completely washed out. Why did they get washed out? Because they got forced in in early February after the 18.5% rally, after you had all the big names telling you the market was going to be down another 20% after being down 25%. And you remember those names very well. Well, instead, the market rallied almost 20%. And no one believed it because all the, quote, big names told them to stay out uh, so they could cover their shorts. And basically what you have now is they all got forced in at the near-term top in early February. Now they're getting flushed out and their bullishness went from 34% last week to 21% this week. I've rarely seen retail investors panic this much this quickly, which means the consolidation is almost done. As soon as you get all that late money out, we can take off again and leave them in the dust. And and that's, it's not, it's not like it's, it's, it's sad, if anything, is really what it is because people trade on emotion versus buying high-quality businesses when they're on sale and then they don't have to worry about this short-term noise and the big name telling them that the market's going to do this. Market. It doesn't matter what the market's going to do. If I own one of the highest-quality businesses in the world in Alibaba or one of the uh, businesses with a moat in um, sealing systems, fuel delivery, brake delivery, etc., uh, I know what I own. I know what it's worth. I know the intrinsic value. All the noise doesn't bother me. And that's where you make big gains over time is when you know what you own. You've done the work. You own quality. Uh, and, um, and and this stuff doesn't shake you out at the exact wrong times with these idiots trading the futures and, you know, crossing their fingers and, you know, rubbing their voodoo dolls and hoping for the best. Um, let's see where the active investment managers wound up today. Um, 53. No. Uh, let me see if I can get this on daily. Let's see if that printed yet today. 81. So it took them down. I don't know if that's the new print yet anyway. Um, So, all right, so that doesn't tell us much. Uh, so that's that. Uh, earnings, consumer, discretionary, George posted these. 
Good job. Let's see. Uh, cumulative earnings power of the top 30 weights of consumer discretionary uh, were revised down by 0.19%, so less than 20 basis points in the last 60 days. So those are basically flat, which is good. Consumer staples uh, also revised down 87 basis points. So those are basically flat in the last 60 days. So that's good. Uh, earnings for 2024 still at 250, 249.30 which is good. The rate of change is slowing. And I think we can get on to the ask me anything questions. So um, if you get value from the ask me anything, stick with us. If not, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Uh, let's go to JT's question about FCX first. Um, so this stock's up 10x uh, from the pandemic lows. It's not for me. It could break out and all that stuff. Uh, let's just see what the um, let's just see what we have here in terms of financials. All right. And while we do that, so thanks for that, JT. We'll get this stuff to come up. All right. Okay, so you've got some revenue growth here. Gross profit is down year on year. So you had the spike up during the pandemic. And then you have kind of it's it's getting negative. Their operating income is going down year on year after running up 10x, and the numbers are going down. That's a that's a red flag for me. Um, so I think I've already answered the question. It's it's not. For me, um, yeah, everything's going down. Earnings are dropping. Yeah, no, you don't want to be in that. It's something that's 10x and the numbers are getting worse, not better, is a formula for a big potential drop. Not saying that will happen. You do have the infrastructure. You do have all those things. Free cash flows dropped $2 billion. I'm not sorry. That's cash from operations. What's free cash flow? Free cash flow dropped from 5.6 billion to 1.6 billion. No, hard pass. Um, and let's see if this business has any quality. Yeah, I mean, it's. Ex yeah, no, uh, it could work. It doesn't mean it won't go up. It's just, it's just an easy pass for us. Our job is to only swing at the fattest pitches, and that's not one of them. Hi, Tom. I've been watching your video cast on YouTube. Since, uh, this is from Aaron Lawson. Uh, since the early days of the pandemic, I've learned a ton. I love you how you walk us through your process of assessing economic conditions in the final financial markets. It's hoping to get your opinion on Glatfelter Corp. Q4 earnings call the company provided annual guidance of 110 to 120 million EBITDA and 20 to 30 million negative free cash flow. We don't do negative free cash flow if we can avoid. Uh, business has been negatively impacted by Russia, Ukraine during uh, due to rising freight, raw materials, energy costs, at its manufacturing sites in Germany. Also, a small portion of high-margin business was lost in Russia and Ukraine. Due to sanctions and the ongoing conflict, the sales to Russia may never come back, but the company is working to fill idle 
capacity and replace lost revenue shifting to other products. Is there a potential multi-bagger here now that we have a disinflationary environment? Um, let's take a quick look. I'm not familiar with this one. GLT. Huh. This would just be a bankruptcy analysis. Um, so it might not be a great business, but you could probably play a rebound trade if you have 100% confidence that it's not going bankrupt. So I'm not going to have time to go through the balance sheet, but you have to go through all the debt securities and find out when they expire and how much they have to pay and what is their optionality to pay it. This is a low quality business historically, barely break even return on capital. If you can't, you can, if you can't compound your capital at greater than 1%, um, then uh, I don't know what to tell you. Uh, cash from operations, cash from investing, free cash flow. So they did 39 and they're telling you next year they're going to be negative 30. That's not good. Balance sheet. 130 million liabilities. Long-term debt has gone up. They took on another $500 million of debt. Uh, doesn't appear that they have any short-term debt. So that might be positive from that standpoint. But this, this is a low-quality business and a trade. Uh, the revenues are increasing. That's good. EBIT is negative. Earnings have just absolutely s the bed in the last 12 months. I don't like this. I'd probably stay away. Maybe you get a trade to 10, but you're already at four. So you're going to take that level of risk for a double. Uh, hard. It's a pass for me. I think it's going to work for a trade, but that's that's not for me. Um, I, I understand your thinking, by the way. So thank you for sending it to me. And I'm not telling you not to do it because it probably does go to 10. Um, but... I can't find anything to love about that. Meaning, if I'm wrong about something, it would be just be time. Like, okay, so if I get into a business and I'm wrong, meaning it doesn't do what I think it's going to do right away. Like you see some of these that we do, they happen overnight. Okay, so um, Cooper Standard basically happened overnight. Uh, Wells Fargo and ExxonMobil basically happened overnight. Um, range... Uh, um, uh, Rolls-Royce we've been sitting on for six months and now it takes off or I don't even know if it's been that long but what, whatever you know those of you who've been listening know when we talked about it first uh, and now it's taking off um, the other UK company that pretty much everyone knows what it is that took off within days so um, if I'm wrong I just want to be wrong on time and know what I own and the only penalty for that is a lower IRR. So if I expect something to be a four bagger in three years, it, excuse me, if I expect something to be a four bagger in 24 months and it takes 48 months, it's not the end of the world. It just lowers my inter internal rate of return, which I have to decide at some point how much time and how much return and determine if that's a good, good use of capital. And 99% of the time it is. And it's offset by the ones that have ridiculous IRRs and they double and triple in months versus years. So um, 
so if I have a good quality, the point is if I have a good quality business, it doesn't really matter. It's going to work out over time. All that matters is um, does it go against me so I can add more in the short term, which would be good because that brings up my IRR because it brings down my basis. Um, but if it's a low quality business, so time works for you in a quality business. Time works against you in a low quality business like that because you're going to have the debt is coming due, due sooner. You have negative free cash flow. I, 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 it's not for me. Uh, pass. That's, that's just a trading thing. Uh, Elux. So this is Frederick Ham, Hammerstrom. Thanks, thanks for all the invaluable lessons over the past three years, especially the AMAs where you show the, the, how you screen companies. Uh, I have shared your podcast with my friends and even started an investing mastermind group uh, that we call Beer and Baba. <laughs> beer and Baba. That's awesome. Uh, so I think you need a lot of beer that it, during last October uh, when you were doing your Baba, but uh, it worked out and it's going to continue to work out. Now, I think you might elect Electrolux uh, listed on the Stockholm Stock Exchange. It's a premium producer of appliances, which had even a cut in half due to component shortage, input and logistics costs, as well as volume drop from the inflation scare. They're now launching a cost reduction program. Headwinds are mainly due to macro factors and thinking it might be a double in 24 months. Agree or no? Uh, well, let me just do something I do know. Whirlpool, because that's the exact same trade. Okay. Um, hmm. All right. E L U X. Oh, let me see if I can pull this up on here. E L U X Y. Okay, that's the chart. Let's see here. Okay. All right, so let's take a look here. Cash flow has been collapsing the last two years he explained that revenues are still going up they must have made an acquisition turn on equity has been choppy at best i mean you can kind of tell looking at this gross profit margins down it's like a medium quality business it's not even a good business it's a medium quality business um e l u x y Okay. All right. Uh, revenues have basically been flat for years. Let me do this in U.S. dollar. They were declining. They were doing 17 billion in 2013. They're doing 12 billion today. This is a this is like a melting ice cube. Gross profit. Lost a ton on EBITDA. It's flat. 
this is another trade. This is a low quality business. Um, yeah, you'll probably get a bounce up over time. I mean, let's just see about their balance sheet. Cash, let's see, assets. Debt is doubling. I mean, come on, into a rising rate environment. Uh, hard pass for me because time's going to work against me. You might get that double in the next 12 months, but if you don't, the clock's a ticking. You got all this debt to refinance. I I would be... Let's see, cash flow. Negative, declining before that. Ah, I don't like the trend of this business. Um, no, I, you can play for a trade. I understand you're thinking to get there, but um, pass. Ash Nijawan, uh, very enjoy much enjoyed your presentation at the Global Portfolio Summit. Would, um, would you mind sharing the stock market slide of the 1980? Okay, I sent that to you. Thank you, Ash. Thanks for coming, by the way. Um, Paul Gertz, I hope you're doing well. Just wanted to shoot over a potential video cast. I made a question for you, stock. I've been looking at the company's called Q-Rate Retail Group, ticker symbol QRTEA. Here are some of my comments on the thinking. Uh, retail is primarily engaged in the video and online commerce industry through their subsidiaries, mostly QVC and HSN. Um, the movie has the company has free cash flow on average over the past nine years of around a billion. Current market cap is around 900 million. Stock has been beaten down to a large amount of debt on their balance sheet. Uh, inventory supply chain issues over the past year, like a lot of other retailers, also a fire at one of the distribution. It's the, the, like the book of Job here. Uh, finally, however, I believe these to be temporary impairments based on some of the recent quarterly performance conference calls. Uh, management's writing the ship. Additionally, I do not believe the current market cap is even close to what the company would go for on a private sale. Okay. On a very conservative DCF, assuming 500 million of the free cash flow is generated with zero perpetual growth and a 12% white weighted average cost of capital. That's what you have to watch. I think your whack is is too conservative uh, as they have to refinance. The value of the equity comes out to around 11. It's at 230. There's a huge margin of safety, even if all my assumptions are wrong. Try it with a 14% whack. See where you get. Um, there is a threat of competition. Companies like Amazon have rolled out influencer live shopping channels, but I believe HSN and QVC have a niche core target audience that's loyal to the brand and dying by the minute. He didn't that. That's my own editorial uh, <laughs> talk about that. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Uh, again, thanks for all the value you provide each week. Paul Gertz. Um, I think like Electrolux and the, and the other one beforehand, uh, this is going to be a trade. And for me, I'd be cautious because time works against me, not for me. But there's enough margin of safety here that it might be worth the risk. It's just a it's a question of sizing. You can make 6x plus if you're right. Um, so let's see. Long-term debt is 5.3 billion. That's pretty consistent. Um, low quality business 
It's not a compounder. You can compound your own money better, but price has gotten so low. Uh, revenues have basically been flat. Companies raising cash, which has been earmarked by paying down debt and strengthening the balance sheet. This is a melting ice cube, my friend. However, QRT. Who came up with the name, by the way? Just as a rule of thumb, you never want to have the letter Q in your ticker symbol because that's what you get after you go bankrupt. I don't know who thinks of these things, but um, anyway. All right, so let's get into financials here. QRT. All right, so, you know, margins have slowly declined over time. Free cash flow is sporadic. Turn on capital is improving. Revenues are, yeah. Well, 14, okay, so flat line. Gross margins are holding in. Net income, man, how did they lose all that money last year? Okay, they had an asset write down, uh, an impairment of goodwill, okay. All right, that's no big deal. Um, cash from operations, cash from investments. So they sold a property, plant, and equipment. So they're selling off assets to pay down debt. Well, they have the assets. That's a good thing. Um, cash from financing. What did they do here? They repurchased common stock. And they paid debt. All right. And they still had positive free cash flow. This is a garbage business, but it's a good trade, I think. Um, you know... I wouldn't get too cute with it. I mean, you know, this is one of those that you white knuckle, you buy it at two, it goes to one, buy a little more, and it gets up to seven, eight dollars, get the hell out. Um, it's a declining business, it's a low quality business, it's cash flow positive, they're gonna have to refinance the debt at a higher rate, which is why they're trying to sell everything that's not nailed down and pay it off. But it could work and the problem with the trade like this is you have to size it very small for it to you know if you're being responsible in the context of a portfolio because it can be a donut hole but uh i think paul i think you probably have a decent trade there and i think that's uh, uh pretty cool so good good job uh tony di donato uh hearing that china's cattle is discounting lithium I understand they are 37% of the market. Lower cost equals more EV sold. I think that would help CPS. New subscriber, love your process, Tony D. Donato. Um, yeah, that'll help CPS. It doesn't hurt. Uh, more, more EVs are great. Um, thanks for the uh, 
view. Uh, Moody, okay, no, we have a call. Uh, that's about investing. Uh, Mohammed. Hey, Tom, saw your Twitter post on range resources. Surprised you were holding since 2012. Can you tell us the story on how the hell you held through the 2020 crash? Next level guts. Uh, 2018, by the way. So you actually, I just posted that. Uh, so if you rewind, you'll see the whole story. How we got in, how it went for us, how it went against us, what we did, brought our basis down, got up to a nine bagger. It's at a six bagger. Maybe it goes down to a five bagger, but uh, it's got a lot more upside. So that's a perfect example of one of those where time works for you, not against you. And it didn't work right immediately, but you turn it into something huge. And if you look at that IRR over time, it's still awesome. So um, thanks, Mohammed, for uh, noticing the slide. Uh, but it uh, was 2018, not 2012. Stephen Frampton, um, have you seen this one? Freshippo CEO says in an internal memo that Freshippo aims for $148 billion of sales by 2033, which is $20 billion more than all of Alibaba has today. Thought I'd send it along in the unlikely case this was news. This is from Stephen Frampton. By the way, Stephen is a young guy who's now writing on SeekingAlpha.com. He writes a lot of articles on Baba and brings over some of our, our information uh, to support his articles. So uh, check him out. Uh, I've seen his a uh, couple of his things, and he's doing a good job and learning a lot in a short period of time. So great work on that, Stephen. Uh, for Shippo, I think we posted this article, but you're absolutely right. If you remember, we were talking about this becoming basically there's a Costco of China within Alibaba that people are giving uh, assigning zero credit for and it's going to be a monster and I think you just nipped it in the bud there so again our our core thesis is on the basis of AliCloud but we get this incredible e-commerce business which did flat revenues even though 60% of the country was shut down wait till uh, the consumption stimulus kicks in. Then you've got the Costco of China embedded that people give zero credit for. The biggest financial services company owning 33% of Ant, uh, and you still can't give it away. And I love it. And there were the same folks on CNBC today saying, never buy a penny worth of Alibaba. Well, thank you very much. Just give me more opportunity to uh, to add in new accounts, which we're excited about. So, um, so yeah, Stephen, good job on that. And with that said, we're done. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Make it a great one. Bye for now.